I first learned about self-compassion in my own personal journey, actually. It was my last year of graduate school in Berkeley, and my life was a mess, to be honest. I had just gotten out of a divorce. It was very messy. I was under a lot of stress. So I thought I'd learn to meditate because I had heard meditation was good for stress. And much to my surprise, um, I went to a local Buddhist group, and the woman leading the group talked about the importance of self-compassion, of how important it is to be a good supportive friend to yourself, especially in times of struggle, which was this was for me. So I started practicing self-compassion, and it had just a huge immediate impact on my life. It helped me cope um, so powerfully. And so what happened was when I did get a job as a professor, and I was doing research in the area of self-esteem, and at that point, you know, thousands of studies had been written about self-esteem, but nothing had been written about self-compassion at that point. Now, the problem with self-esteem, I mean, first of all, it's a good thing to have it. It's, you know, people with high self-esteem have better mental health than people who hate themselves. Clearly, we don't want to have low self-esteem. The problem really is how you get it. So the thing about self-esteem is people get it from feeling better than others or always comparing themselves to others to, to sense their self-esteem. How do I stack up compared to that person? But most of all, when you fail or make a mistake or screw up in some way, uh, your self-esteem deserts you. So I, I was studying this at the same time that I was practicing self-compassion. The thing about self-compassion is it steps in precisely when self-esteem deserts you. When you make a mistake, when you fail, when you mess up in some way, then self-compassion is the attitude of just being understanding, caring, and kind to yourself in times of struggle. So I thought, well, no one's studied it yet. Why don't I give it a go? So I created a scale to measure it back in 2003 and, and started researching self-compassion. And now there's over 1,200 um, peer-reviewed journal article studies on self-compassion. So it's really been wonderful to watch the explosion of interest. The very easiest way to understand what self-compassion is, is being a good, kind, supportive friend to yourself when you fail or are struggling in some way when something's challenging in your life. Now, most people, if you ask them, you know, how do you act towards your friends when they're struggling or if they failed or made a mistake, most people are pretty kind and compassionate to their friends. They're understanding, they give them support, um, you know, and, and instead of pity, you know, pity is like looking down on your friend. We don't like to be pitied, but compassion is, hey, you know, this is only human. I've been there too. That type of warm, supportive response that we give to our friends. Most of us are much, much harsher with ourselves than we are with our friends. There's a radical difference between how we treat ourselves and we treat our friends. So in simplest terms, what self-compassion is, is just giving ourselves that same support, understanding, uh, kindness, and again, remembering that it's only human to make mistakes the way we do for others. So most people tend to be very self-critical. I mean, there, there obviously there's a variation. Some people are more self-critical than others, but certainly one of the key features of people with mental health issues like anxiety, depression, etc., is that they tend to be self-critical. So in other words, um, when they make a mistake or they fail in some way, they tend to harshly judge themselves. They, they tend to globalize it as well. Instead of I made a mistake. They think I am a mistake, right? So those harsh um, thoughts about oneself really leads to um, all sorts of negative mind states. Also physiologically, it 
it puts us into threat defense mode constantly. So we're very reactive and we aren't able to be our, our best responsive selves. What self-compassion does is it, instead of feeling safe by being reactive, and if you think about it, you know, people shouldn't judge themselves for being self-critical because when we criticize ourselves, what we're really doing is saying, there's a problem, I'm not safe, I need to fix it, you know, danger, danger. And we think that the best way to fix a problem is to beat ourselves up, hoping that we'll come somehow keep ourselves in line. Unfortunately, what it does is it just makes us more reactive and not act better at all, and it just starts this downward spiral. But another way to feel safe is by feeling accepted, comforted, soothed, the way you might think of a parent, ideal, an ideal parent does for their child when they're upset. So with self-compassion, we're helping ourselves feel safe through this kind, supportive stance to ourselves, And that actually allows for more problem solving, for better motivation. A lot of people think that if they're self-compassionate, they'll lose their motivation. Research shows it's exactly the opposite. Cutting yourself down is gonna make you afraid of failure. It's gonna undermine your motivation. There's lots of research that shows that being a warm, supportive friend to yourself, kind of that, that good coach you may have had in school as opposed to that horrible, mean, cruel coach, which we are with ourselves, that's gonna enhance your motivation. It's very easy to criticize ourselves for criticizing ourselves and get into this uh, natural spiral. So the first step really is to have compassion for inner critic to realize that this part of ourselves, and it's only a part, is actually trying to keep ourselves safe, is trying to, again, manage our behavior, manage, control the circumstances so that we won't be in danger anymore. When we understand that, we can actually have some understanding and kindness toward the inner critic. You can say, thank you for trying to keep me safe, but actually I'd like to try another way. In other words, we don't get rid of the inner critic. We just aren't so dominated by it. So we also allow this other voice, that part of ourselves, which is understanding that tends to be wiser, tends to be more mature, um, to understand that this is human condition. Part of the human condition is making mistakes. No one's perfect. I mean, we know that logically, but emotionally we don't. We need a little space to really let that insight in. And again, this idea of being a supportive, caring, giving, giving constructive criticism as opposed to harsh, mean criticism, we are capable of doing that, but we just, it just takes a little longer. So it, it's more, instead of getting rid of the inner critic or shutting off that voice, we just don't take it so seriously, first of all. And then we also allow space for another voice to, to give its input as well. And that voice is usually a lot more, it gives more sound advice, put it that way. I think the reason the field of psychology is so excited about self-compassion is because it is a skill that can be taught. I mean, we've known for decades that things like neuroticism and negative thinking and self-criticism leads to poor mental health. That's nothing new. What is new is that you actually can learn this skill. So um, for instance, with my colleague, Chris Germer, um, who's a therapist, we've developed something called mindful self-compassion which is an eight-week training program to help people develop skills of self-compassion. And research we did on the study, um, one year later after taking the course, people had lost none of the skills. But even much briefer trainings, um, just having people write to themselves in a self-compassionate way, you know, being kind to themselves, remembering that, hey, it's, it's human to make mistakes, it's human to struggle, and kind of being more, more mindful, which is actually a component of self-compassion, just being more mindful of, you know, this is really hard right now. 
um, that even something as simple as writing to yourself in a compassionate way can actually change behavior. So again, it's just really exciting. That's actually one of the things that's, I have to admit, it's kind of blown me away by the self-compassion research is that it's easier than I thought for people to learn to be self-compassionate. And the reason is, is most people actually have some skills at being a good friend. You know, if, you, if you've reached it to a certain age in life, usually you've had some good friends or maybe a partner that you've supported. You, you know what tone of voice to use. You know what to say. Um, and then so we have the skill in place. We just need to learn to remember to apply it to ourselves. Not only just remember, but to give ourselves permission to be kind to ourselves. And for a lot of people, that's the biggest barrier. Maybe because of their upbringing, they weren't raised in a way where they thought unconditional love was an option. And it can even actually be scary to be kind to oneself. We actually have a term for this we use in our program, and it's called backdraft. So um, for a lot of people, especially if, if their parents, maybe, you know, they, they went, didn't have secure attachment, the idea of being a good friend to oneself is frightening. It's like break some sort of unwritten contract they develop with their parents that, you know, you saw, I just internalize it. Yes, I'm bad. It's all my fault. I'm so sorry. So it can be a little frightening at first to change this. But believe it or not, my, I love my colleague Chris. He says, don't worry. Eventually, kaboom. So backdraft is a firefighting term, you know, when you let fresh air into a fire, the flames rush out. And that actually happens with um, self-compassion sometimes. The fresh air of kindness goes into your heart. All the old pain rushes out. He says, don't worry. Eventually, kaboom becomes kabloom. <laughs> he says it much more sweet than I do. But the idea is that uh, it's part of the healing process. So most of us, our whole lives have shut the doors of our hearts to keep the pain away. And when we start to open the, pain, the doors of our hearts, it can be scary at first. And sometimes the old pain rushes out. But once you know that this is just part of the process, you know, you don't let yourself get overwhelmed by it. You try to do it in amounts that's, that don't overwhelm you. And we actually, that's one of the important skills we teach people in our courses, how to open the doors of your heart in a way that's sustainable and that's not going to overwhelm you. But what I've been really surprised by is that people can do it. Um, so some, for some people, it's a slower journey for sure. Um, especially if you have a lot of backdraft, you've got to, you know, kind of put your toe in the water and take it out and go bit by bit. But, you know, the fascinating thing about even dealing with backdraft is, let's say you're someone listening to this and if you try to be kind to yourself, what comes up for you is fear, okay? If you know that what's happening is you're just experiencing backdraft and you say, okay, I'm not going to let it fully in right now as a way of being kind to myself because I want to take care of myself and I don't want to overwhelm myself as opposed to unconscious numbing, which is what most of us do. You're actually building the skill of self-compassion. That's the amazing thing. Self-compassion is really just kind of consciously trying to give yourself what you need um, to be healthy. And so even practicing, not practicing self-compassion can be a self-compassionate act and ironically, ironically build the muscle of self-compassion. I've really been just so amazed at how even people with pretty severe trauma histories, for instance, can actually learn the skill. Now, for some people, it's, it's good to learn the skill under the guidance of a therapist for sure. You know, and you kind of know who you are if that's your, if your story or not. 
but pretty much everyone, it seems that almost anyone can learn the skill of being a good friend to oneself. It's, not, it's actually not rocket science. For some people, self-kindness isn't a problem, right? They just maybe haven't thought about it very much and they start being a good friend and it all kind of works and the whole process unravels fairly easily. Um, for other people, a thought they might have is, you know, I don't deserve self-compassion, right? And so again, maybe that's a thought that they've internalized very young. So basically what needs to happen is, first of all, just to realize that this is just a part of us that got this message early. It's not our entire selves. This is a message we learned when we were growing up that somehow it's safer for me to not be kind to myself. It's safer for me to think I'm undeserving of kindness because maybe you had to believe that to cope as a child. But to realize that's just a part of ourselves, give compassion to that part of ourselves. You know, how painful to have that thought that you don't deserve self-compassion when in fact, the only quali qualifying thing you need to be have self-compassion is to be a flawed human being. And most people can check that box, flawed human being, got it, right? All human beings, by nature of just being human, are worthy of compassion. Most people kind of can understand that logically. But what happens emotionally, if you got that message early that somehow you aren't deserving, it can be scary. But so again, you can just see that as a part of yourself. Be kind to yourself because of the pain of that. And then start to just let other parts of yourself that maybe get shouted out by our self-critical voice, start to emerge. It does happen with time, but you have to set your intention. You have to decide, I'm tired of beating myself up. I'm tired of causing myself additional pain. I would really like to make a change. I would really like to be supportive to myself. And once you actually set your intention, um, the whole process can start to, to heal. What we find in the research is that many people have blocks to self-compassion that make it difficult for them to be kind to themselves. And they're really um, misconceptions about what self-compassion is. For instance, a lot of people confuse self-compassion with self-pity, right? There is a difference. Um, self-compassion involves framing your experience of struggle in light of the shared human experience. In other words, remembering that you know no one's perfect, everyone struggles, it's not just me, I'm not alone in this. Whereas self-pity is a very self-focused state, you know, poor me, woe is me. And so what we find is, as opposed to self-pity, which can lead to you know going down the rabbit hole of feeling bad about oneself, self-compassion actually allows you to feel more connected to other people when you remember, oh, it's not just me. Actually, the number one fear of self-compassion is that it will undermine your motivation. People think they need to be really hard on themselves to achieve their goals. Again, the research shows it's just the opposite, that being a good supportive coach to yourself as opposed to a coach that tells you you're crap and you're never going to amount to anything actually allows you to achieve your goals. It gives you self-confidence. Um, you don't have the same fear of failure. When you do fail, you're more able to learn from your failures, pick yourself up and try again. So that's another misgiving. Uh, some people think it's self-indulgent to be self-compassionate, that basically self-compassion means coddling yourself or just, you know, giving yourself whatever you want, not, not having any clear boundaries with yourself. What we find, in fact, that is if you care about yourself like a good friend, you aren't going to be self-indulgent because self-indulgent means 
choosing short-term pleasure at the expense of long-term harm. And so self-compassionate people, they exercise more, they eat better, they go to the doctor more often, they're more likely to practice safe sex, for instance. So um, self-compassion we know is the opposite of self-indulgence. Some people fear it's selfish, right? That I shouldn't be thinking about myself, I should always be thinking about others. The problem is that if you don't think about yourself at all and you just think about others, you won't be able to sustain giving to others. We've got huge problems with burnout for caregivers, for parents, because if you constantly think of meeting others' needs and not meeting your own needs, you need to kind of recharge your own batteries in order to be there for others. And also, think about when you are in a self-compassionate frame of mind, which means you're, you're kind of calm inside, you aren't beating yourself, up, you're being uh, kind to yourself, you've got kind of a warm feeling of self-acceptance. Actually, other people would rather be around you. They get more from being around you than when you're lost in the rabbit hole of self-judgment and self-recrimination. I mean, that's actually not helping others at all. It's a very self-focused state. So that's another um, misgiving. And then the last misgiving that people have is uh, they think it means letting yourself off the hook. That it just means, oh, okay, I'm only human. So I robbed a bank. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> but in fact, uh, self-compassion gives you the sense of safety needed to own up to your mistakes and apologize for them. If you're a very self-critical person, you're less likely to acknowledge your mistakes because it's so painful to do so that you're more likely to try to blame other people for your mistakes. So we know with the research that self-compassionate people are more likely to accept responsibility for their mistakes and more likely to apologize for them. Whenever I talk about self-compassion to groups, I always tell them, listen, these are not true about self-compassion. These are common misgivings that get in the way. But once people know they aren't true, it kind of helps them relax and then they can give themselves again permission to be compassionate with themselves. The first step is just saying, I want to stop causing myself so much additional unnecessary suffering by beating myself up. I want to do something different. And then just, you know, I want to start being more supportive. I like the language of being more supportive as opposed to giving yourself a break. It's less easily misconstrued as just blowing things off. You know, if you think of what a supportive person does. For instance, an ideal supportive compassionate parent sometimes says no. You know, you got to go to school. You can't eat that all those sweets. You know, you got to you got to do all these things to keep you healthy. If you care about someone, oftentimes that means setting boundaries and saying no and you know, I'm taking responsibility for things, and that's really what we're doing with ourselves. Some people actually talk about self-compassion as a process of reparenting yourself, you know, giving yourself the type of supportive, uh, kind, but boundaried and kind of, you know, setting your expectations in a way that's not like you aren't good enough if you don't succeed, but I want you to succeed because I care about you. You know, what a good parent does, that really what we're doing is we're reparenting ourselves. And and these, these old habit patterns actually can be relearned. Yeah, you know, we, we say, um, walk slowly, go farther. So you can't necessarily sprint. Sometimes it's just one step slowly in front of the other. But at least you're going in the direction of greater self-support as opposed to most people who are just, you know, again, they're like pulling the rug out from underneath themselves constantly through their self-hatred and their self-doubt and their self-criticism, um, just making it impossible for them to heal, really. So this is another way that that works and we have research to show that it works, which is so amazing.